Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Tim Clutton Brock. He's professor in the Department of Zoology at Cambridge University. He is known for his comparative studies of the behavioral ecology of mammals, particularly red deer and meerkats. He works in three main areas, the evolution of vertebrate breeding systems, population regulation and the control of population stability in large mammals, and natural and sexual selection in natural populations. So Dr. Clinton Brock, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Pleasure to be here. Okay, so today we're going to focus mostly on mammals and mammal society. So. Uh, how far back in evolutionary history do we need to go to find the first societies or what we could call societies? Well, that obviously very much depends on what you call societies, <laughs> as you write. So um, the first life appeared probably around four billion years ago mm -hmm. um, with the uh, prokaryotes, a very simple um, unicellular organisms without um, a nucleus um, around three and a half million, three and a half billion years ago. Yeah. And they tended, some of them certainly aggregated. So if by a society you mean an aggregation of independent reproducing units, you're looking at a very long history indeed. The first um, multicellular animals and, uh, and um, the, the first uh, multicellular organisms, I should have said, somewhere around three billion, three and a half billion. And in a sense, the collection of cells within a single body is a society itself. Mm -hmm. Depends again how you think about societies. The first animals somewhere around 650 million years ago. So once you've got animals, you've got mobile units that can um, propel themselves around and they can aggregate or disperse and so on. So that it's not a simple uh, question to answer there. It's a gradual process of the, uh, of the evolution of independent reproducing units into more complex units and more complex units. So you could argue that there are societies at different levels. And I, I suspect you're really wanting to know uh, when did when do you see the first uh, animal societies? Mm -hmm. right. I mean, plants have yeah. societies in a sense too. They tend to aggregate with um, with other members of the same species. I, I suspect you're interested in animal societies. That probably goes back right to the origin of uh, of animals at around 650 million. So a long time. Mm -hmm. So from an evolutionary perspective, what are the benefits, the benefits and costs of living in a society or being part of a social species? Well, I'm basically by aggregating and aggregate, you know, if I, I'm taking, I'm looking at society in the simplest way as, as an aggregation of individuals that uh, are commonly from the, the same species or the same um, the, the, the same genetic groups. And in most cases, aggregation, or in many cases, aggregation uh, assists in competition. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're getting aggregating units uh, associating with each other to compete with others. If you look at uh, clumps of lichens on a rock, for example, 
you find actually that they have little black boundaries and you've got groups of lichens that are competing with each other and they're taking each other over and so on. The same, you, you get the same sorts of things with uh, many other spatial organisms. You get it with plants as well as, as with animals. Aggregations of the same species start competing with other aggregations of the same species uh, to give them the heave-ho to take over more resources themselves. And cooperation, um, association and cooperation is, in a sense, it's moving up the level of competition. So if you think of the original sort of free, uh, free, free, free moving, um, non-mobile, drifting, uh, reproductive units in the primordial soup, they just drifted around. But once they got onto, there, there would have been better resources and worse resources. And if you aggregate round a resource, you can occupy the resource and thus do better than individuals that are just floating freely. So aggregation helps competition. Um, it, uh, it commonly assists in uh, either finding or uh, locating or staking a claim to food. So animal groups commonly compete for food. In many cases, as you move up to vertebrates and, uh, and to uh, homeotherms, uh, aggregation helps to uh, maintain heat, particularly in winter. So quite a lot of the animals that hibernate, quite a lot of the mammals that hibernate, for example, hibernate in groups because uh, that grouping helps to, to hold temperature. Uh, once you're at this level, then uh, aggregation and the formation of social groups is commonly useful in keeping predators at bay. Groups can defend themselves. Individuals can learn, can identify the, the uh, identity of predators, can teach that to their children uh, by grouping together. They can benefit from the information they derive from other individuals. They can uh, alert each other to, to predators and so on. And finally, uh, grouping commonly is important to reproduction. So the groups commonly help to, uh, in some cases, in some species, they help to rear um, each other's offspring. In many cases, they protect them and groups become group territorial. So they maintain, so groups of males in some cases defend breeding access to groups of females. Groups of females may uh, bunch uh, and help each other uh, if males are attacking them or males are attacking from another group. So it's typically a mixture of benefits in relation to competition and uh, benefits in relation to cooperation relative to the broader environment. Does mm -hmm. that give you the kind of answer you were wanting or is, it, is that much too unspecific? Well, we're going to talk about some of those aspects of sociality that you mentioned later on. But first, let me ask you, do we need group selection to understand how different animal societies evolve? Or can we simply look at evolution at the level of individuals? Uh, that's a, a complex question which people are um, where, where there's a lot of debate. I think the, I mean, it's obviously the case that there are differences between groups and the groups are in competition and that some groups die out and others are, are maintained. So Darwin's original explanation of the evolution 
of sociality in in insect societies, in you social insects, where you get uh, a queen that does most of the breeding and then a whole pile of her children that look after the babies. Uh, Darwin pointed out that this was effectively selection between families. Now, whether you choose to look at that, a selection between queens, queens basically control, or in, in many of the cases, they exert extensive control over the, over the, the workers. Mm -hmm. And queens that control their workers may do better and they may breed better and the societies may, may do better. So you can think of that if you wish as, uh, as selection operating at the group level, but they're all relatives or they're almost all relatives too. So you could alternatively think of that as selection operating extensively on queens mm -hmm. to help produce relatives. I think the so that's the, the case, the sort of original case of, of, of social insects. You certainly group, get group, some groups uh, dying out as you move to groups of unrelated individuals. The immediate issue there is that you're since you're dealing with unrelated individuals, their evolutionary interests are commonly divergent. They don't all share the same interests. They, they, they may want different things within the groups. They may often they'll often compete with other individuals in the same group. So you don't have the same degree of the alignment of interests. Now, while it's the case that some groups persist and are maintained uh, and others don't, it's also the case that natural selection is pegging away at individuals within the group. Mm -hmm. And the rate at which groups go extinct is much lower than the rate at which individuals die or breed or, and survive. So I think the, the basic answer to your question is individual selection is a much more powerful mechanism under virtually all circumstances than group selection. Group selection may sometimes occur and it quite commonly occurs in parallel with individual selection. But what you see when you're looking at uh, individual adaptations with animals, which is in a sense where we're getting to what animals do, uh, how they're formed, how they reproduce, and so on. Uh, you seldom see there, I think, uh, adaptations that benefit groups which do not benefit individuals. Mm -hmm. So I think if you're looking at if you're looking at animal adaptation and animal uh, and social adaptations generally you're in practice looking at circumstances, looking at, at, at uh, adaptations, at, at, at traits that benefit individuals rather than groups. And there are quite a lot of things that individuals do which are not good for the group. So for example, in quite a lot of primates, uh, males, when they get to a breeding group, they get to a new breeding group, uh, they move around and kill any dependent babies. And that advances the next estrus period of the females and so increases their mating success. Now that's good for the males, but it's obviously not good for the group and it's not good for the species. So what, you're, what you find commonly under a lot of circumstances is selection within and between individuals within groups operating in a contrary way to what you would perceive as the evolutionary interests of the group or species. Mm -hmm. So 
it's on that basis that that I'm trying to give you a general answer to that and, and, and saying, well, yes, we do get uh, selection operating between groups. And this is uh, particularly powerful when everyone uh, is close kin and there's a considerable alignment of interest. But in many cases, there's little alignment of interest. You're dealing with unrelated individuals who are competing with each other. And that competition, the, the interests of individuals under those will usually win out in relation to um, the interests of the group. So I think it's useful generally to see animal social life as a product of individual selection rather than group selection. Mm -hmm. You have, just to add one extra thing there, um, you have to be clear about what individual interests are because individuals' interests are obviously common to survival. They're obviously breeding success, but in some cases it goes beyond that and as Hamilton pointed out, individuals can gain fitness or rather the genes that they hold can gain replication benefits if individuals uh, assist or do other things for relatives. So uh, I mean, you can express this at an individual level, you can express it as a genetic level. Um, but if you think about uh, an individual's success as the extent to which it proliferates uh, its genes into following generations. It can either do that by breeding or it can do it by helping individuals that, carrying the, that carry the same genes. So mm -hmm. there's a distinction here that evolutionary biologists draw between direct fitness, producing your own offspring into the next generation, and what's called indirect fitness, which is operating through relatives that share the same genes. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense to you? Yes, and that would involve mechanisms like kin selection, correct? That would be kin selection, yes. Kin selection is the, the term. It's kin selection that, that operates through indirect fitness. There are various other sort of technical areas where uh, indirect fitness occurs, which you might not call it kin selection, but uh, by and large, yes, kin selection, indirect fitness uh, are, are the same thing. Mm -hmm. So, since we're focusing on mammals, are there aspects of the sociality of animal of mammal species that uh, we find across all mammal species and that distinguish them from other animals? So, yes and no. I mean, there, there are characteristics of mammals that define mammals, um, and the most obvious is lactation. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, all mammals lactate to their, to their young. And uh, one of the consequences of that it mean, is that all mammals show some form of parental care. So with birds, you get um, females in some, in some species laying eggs in mounds where they're heated by the mound. There's no form of direct parental care apart from the production of eggs. Um, with mammals, you always get female care. And that lit ties in females to the need to care for their young. You can't get them producing, producing very, 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 young, uh, very young offspring, very young neonates, and leaving it to males to look after. So you do with eggs, with, with, with um, quite a number of birds and fish, uh, particularly, um, particularly amphibia and, and particularly fish, males look after clutches of eggs which the females lay in the nest prepared by the male and the male does everything that's necessary 
for, for the eggs as they hatch. The uh, reliance of, of mammals, the uh, ubiquity of lactation means that females are tied into parental care. Yeah. So uh, you, you don't get uh, situations where males are the exclusive caregivers. And that has various con consequences for the way of, for the for patterns of competition. So you tend not to get, as you in a number of insects, in quite a number of fish, you get males defending a nest site and defending that aggressively and trying to attract females to the nest site uh, to lay eggs there, and then the male looks after the lot. With mammals, you're much more likely to get mo mobile males going out guarding females, uh, going out uh, and finding receptive females and mating with them and, and, and so on. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, would you say that parental investment is an important factor in how different animal societies develop? Absolutely. Uh, parental investment is a uh, looking after your young instead of just producing eggs, which either which are looking after your young increases their survival, it increases their growth and, and their eventual breeding success. So what you're doing if you in it, but it also limits the number of eggs you can produce the number of potential um, new offspring that you you can produce. So if you go in for parental care, you're uh, accepting a limit on the number of offspring that you can produce. You can't produce thousands of offspring in a short time because you're going to look after them. Uh, it increases the capacity of the offspring um, to gain resources uh, and to survive under competition from other members of the same species or under adverse environmental conditions. So in a sense, what parental care is about um, is producing fewer offspring, which individually have a higher chance of breeding success. Mm -hmm. And does the sociality of a given species have anything to do with their preferred mating system? Uh, well, I, okay. I, I have vaguely problems with a preferred mating system okay. because um, no one goes around asking animals what mating system they prefer. Um, they, mating systems are commonly a consequence of the, uh, of the conflicting, of the divergent um, intra-evolutionary interests of males and females. So males are out to maximize the number of females they fertilize in many cases, and females are out in many cases to maximize the resources or the access to resources that males provide for them, or in some cases to maximize the extent to which males help them to rear their offspring. So sociality, yes, does affect breeding systems in a big way, because if, and, and here I think what you have to do is to think about the, the, the sexes separately. So if females are social, if females aggregate in groups, as they do in quite a lot of mammals, what that means is that males can a male can guard a whole group of females. Mm -hmm. So if you have ten, if you have females in say in, in groups of ten, that means that a, 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 a successful male can guard breeding access to a group of ten females. 
with the result that uh, there are, if, if there's an equal sex ratio in the, in the population, there are nine other males who don't get anything. Right. Now that right. then generates competition between males. So female sociality uh, tends to lead in the animal world to, poly to polygamy, to, to polygyny in particular, breeding systems, mating systems, where one male breeds with multiple females, or if groups are very big, cases where there are multiple males per group breeding with multiple females. In that situation, it's quite common that both sexes will breed with multiple partners, which is a system we call polygynandry. Both, both sexes have multiple partners. Um, so female sociality is, lies at the core of, gener of uh, the factors that influence male competition. And the extent to which males compete um, with each other to breed for females strongly affects selection on their characteristics. So in the sort of classical cases like red deer that I've worked on or, or elephant seals, where an individual male can hold a harem, a substantial harem of 20 or 30 females and, and keep other males away, that generates intense competition between males. And that intense competition generates selection for weaponry, for teeth in some cases, for antlers in others, for uh, for big hind legs in the, in the kangaroos that they use. The, the precise uh, form of, of weaponry depends on the way in which males compete. And it generates, it commonly generates selection for increased size So in, in males. So it's in these species that males are considerably bigger than females. So if you look at elephant seals, males are, are nearly twice the length of females. Uh, and uh, five or six times as heavy as females, similarly with red deer. So the extent to which the sexes differ in, in body size, the biggest differences in the size of males relative to females are in strongly polygynous societies. And if you track that back, that's associated with some form of sociality. So if you find situations where, as in quite a lot of mammals, females hold separate ranges, Mm -hmm. So each female has a range that that usually restricts the number of females that single males can breed with. Yeah. And that doesn't remove the possibility of polygyny, but it means that the capacity of the system, the, the extent of polygyny in the systems is likely to be much smaller because males can't guard access to as many females doesn't mean to say necessarily that there's no sexual, there's no intrasexual competition occurring in males. So you get, for example, bears, where females have individual ranges, males wander more widely, searching for females and, and, and breeding with them. You get quite a, a substantial degree of polygyny and quite a substantial difference in size between the sexes. But the the aggregation of females in social groups intensifies competition between males under many circumstances. Mm -hmm. Right. So do we know why different species have different ways of structuring their societies in terms of uh, philopatry? Because there are species that are male philopatric, others that are female philopatric. I mean, could you explain that? Well, I've argued with mammals um, that this is related to uh, the 
probability to, uh, of the need to, to, uh, of females to avoid close inbreeding. Now, mm -hmm. what's known is that inbreeding with uh, first order relatives, your full sibs or your mother and father is a seriously bad idea. Inbreeding, um, we, even at lower levels, carries substantial costs uh, because you get, uh, because individuals are more likely to be homozygous and deleterious recessives are likely to show up. And in under almost, in all populations where individuals normally outbreed, normally breed with, um, normally avoid breeding with, with, with close relatives or, or seldom breed with, with close relatives, um, there are substantial costs to breeding success and survival of inbreeding. Inbreeding is bad for your, for, uh, commonly for, for, for your fecundity. It's commonly bad for the survival of your children and the longevity of your children. So inbreeding is generally something uh, that animals want to avoid. Now, what we found with mammals looking at it is that most, in the great majority of, of mammals, females tend to remain in the, in the group in the breeding group that they were born in. Uh, that obviously makes sense because dispersing, leaving your usual range, leaving the individuals that you've grown up with, um, carries enormous risks in most animal, in most mammal populations. It carries risks in terms of competition with neighbors. It carries risks in, in terms of feeding, uh, of problems of finding food in unfamiliar environments, carries risks in terms of Relation and so on. So no one in mammal societies, in animal societies generally, no one disperses lightly. Dispersal is something in general that you, you want to avoid. But you also need to avoid inbreeding. And what we, what we found in, in the case in most, in the majority of group living mammals, um, so, we're talk, so I'm talking about cases where females are actually living in groups with males um, that defend the groups. Uh, in many of these species, females remain in their natal groups, uh, but they avoid breeding with unfamiliar, with, they avoid breeding with familiar or unrelated males. So they avoid breeding with their father or their brothers that, that they've grown up with. And in these societies, males emigrate soon after they reach sexual maturity, and they go and try to find a group without males or displaced males from another group. So that's the, that's the commonest situation in mammals. But there are a minority of mammals, including um, all three of the African great apes, chimpanzees, the two species of chimpanzees and gorillas, where females normally leave uh, their breeding group soon after sexual maturity. And the, that's also the case in um, some of the social equids, it's in the case of a number of bats. It's a minority of species where, male, where females normally leave. And the species where females leave are ones that appears to be where males or groups of related males have unusually long periods of, uh, ten, of breeding tenure in their group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And grew, the, 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 their tenure is sufficiently long that it's longer than the age at which females get to breed for the first time. So they are species where females need to leave to avoid, to, to, to find unrelated partners. So you have a minority of species with long male tenure, um, which, can, which is unusual in mammals probably because 
in most mammals, as I've, uh, as I've told you, there's strong competition between males. And that strong competition between males shortens the breeding lifespan of males. So if you look at red deer and elephant seals and all these strong uh, polygynous species, males have much shorter breeding lifespans than females. Some cases it's only for two, males only breed for two or three years. And obviously the short breeding lifespans uh, allow females to remain in their natal group without ending up in a group where their father is still the breeding male. Females can consequently remain and breed in the natal group, avoid uh, breeding with um, closely related males and males then disperse and new males immigrate in. But under circumstances in species where males have unusually long tenure in the breeding group, females have to leave. And in those species, quite commonly males, not in all of them, but in quite a number of them, males may remain and breed in their natal groups. Mm -hmm. so, so you typically get one sex dispersing. And in mammals, it's usually the case that it's the, the dispersing sex are males and the philopatric sex are females. As I say, in a minority of species, it's the other way around where females disperse, males stay. And in those species, male tenure is usually long and it appears usually to be longer than the age at which females um, start to breed. And just to say one final thing, I've been talking about philopatry as remaining in the natal group. There are quite a lot of other animals where both sexes disperse. So for example, um, in quite a lot of pair living species, both males and females disperse from their parents' territory, and they may go different distances. In some cases, males go further, and in some cases, females go further. Now, some people refer to that as philopatry. I've been talking very much about the structure of groups and using philopatry to, to refer to cases where you actually remain in the group you're born not to refer to how, dis how far away from the group you move. Mm -hmm. So one has to be a bit careful with thinking about just what you mean by philopatry because different people mean different things by philopatry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, uh, and we know, do we know why different uh, animal species have different, let's say, social arrangements, like, for example, multi-male, multi-female groups, one male, multi-female groups, and possibly others? Well, first thing is, uh, I mean, you use the term arrangements, no one arranges that, that's, that's okay. the, you know, that's the outcome, it's, you, you don't get an animal group saying, you know, um, this is the arrangement for this society. This is the, the social norm. And that's what comes to it. Uh, you basically, you tend, you, 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 you get, if females are aggregated, but the groups are quite small, they're commonly defended um, for during the breeding season at any rate by a single male. If female groups get very big, then commonly you have multiple males because one male can't uh, keep the others out. And uh, if you look at it, it's commonly, I've, I've told you that uh, males that hold large harems tend to have relatively short periods of, of breeding because competition on them is so intense that someone rolls up and kicks them out. If you try and hold 100 females 
if you can imagine it, um, there are 99 males waiting to kick you out. So you've got an immense power of competition, which is giving people, giving individuals the, the shove out. Now, so you don't get harms that size, but even if you're trying to keep nine other males at bay, uh, that's, uh, you're, you're having to work pretty hard to do that. And by sharing the access to females with another male, you're actually prolonging your tenure. So if you think of males as trying to maximize their lifetime breeding success, they need to maximize not just their breeding success per year, but their breeding success over a number of years. And uh, that's why I think you quite commonly find multiple males where you get relatively big groups of females. And going to the other extreme, um, why do you get, you, you get uh, a small number of species where males and females have quite distinct territories so males are not allowed in inside, individual males and individual females occupy different feeding territories. Those are cases where there's usually intense competition for particular food resources, which keep the sexes actually, actually apart for most of the year, apart from their breeding. And you get uh, a substantial number of species which are pair living where a male and a female share territories like that. Now we don't understand um, those, those species are quite widely dispersed um, in mammals, so they're taxonomically, you get them in quite a wide range of, of different species. We don't well understand the, the distribution of, of pair living, but uh, the tendency would be to suggest that it's something to do with uh, competition for resources and food between females, which actually keeps the females separate, causes the females not to tolerate other females in that range, and uh, the, the situation where it then becomes better for males to, uh, it, males are more successful if they guard a single female's territory and maximize her breeding success in, su in successive breeding attempts than if they go out and uh, try and uh, monopolize multiple female ranges. So that uh, the cases where in these species where an individual male tries to guard the territories of multiple females in separate areas, they seldom do so for long because someone occupies, they can only be, be with one female at one time and someone else picks up one of the, one, their other females while they're associated with a single female. So there's no very good explanation of monogamy, probably something to do with uh, resources and something to do with, uh, with males, with the strategy of males, how males maximize their breeding success, whether they do it, whether they're more likely to maximize their breeding success by defending a single female for a long period of time than trying to defend multiple separate females but we don't fully understand that yet. Mm -hmm. uh, one final thing, being suggested that, um, that as in birds, um, it may be the case that uh, male care is important. In lots, in many monogamous mammals, males help care for the young. So both sexes uh, care for the young in many cases. Um, in, in many cases, as in many of the canids, males help to feed young too. Um, but there are also quite a number of species where males don't contribute directly to the care of young, 
but they still live in pairs. So uh, there are reasons for thinking that care of males, care of offspring by males, is not the certainly not the only cause of pair living. Uh, that it may be important in some, um, but the tendency from reconstructions, it looks as if the evolution of pair living either occurred at the same time as the evolution of male care or preceded it. So that the tendons are, the te I, I tend to believe that it's commonly the case that male care actually evolved after the evolution of pair living. So if you're if you're going to guard a single female, you can increase your breeding success, a male can increase his breeding success by helping to rear the young, but that it's not the case um, that selection for males to assist in rearing young is commonly the driving force that leads to pair living. Mm -hmm. And this sexual division of labor also one aspect that we have to consider when trying to explain the evolution of certain aspects of animal sociality? Well, uh, sexual division of, of, of labor, um, that, that's usually a term that's used of cooperative breeders. Mm -hmm. So it's usually a term that's used of small number of, of mammals where groups consist of multi, uh, of commonly a single breeding female and a single breeding male and a pile of helpers. And in those, those are the systems that are similar to those of social insects. So in social insects, you get a queen uh, who, com who commonly stores sperm for life. She, so she mates with a male, holds the sperm, produces lots of masses, thousands of, of helpers, who actually help her rear her young. And under those circumstances, you commonly get a division of labor between breeders, particularly between breeding females and non-breeding females, between, um, between breeding females and helpers. As you switching now to, to mammals, you don't get anything on the same scale as social insects, but you get a small number of species which are roughly similar to that, where commonly a single female breeds in each group, I'm thinking in particular of the of things like meerkats would be an example of this, but so are mole rats, um, so are some of the the so are many of the canids, uh, so are one or two primates, including the calitrichine monkeys, where typically one female um, does most of the breeding, if, if if not all of it, in in a group. Many of these cases breed with a single male, and then there are non-breeding helpers that help to rear the young. And under those circumstances, it's commonly the case that the helpers do quite a pile of the work. Um, in some cases, as in the mole rats, uh, the queens actually do rather little digging of tunnels or defense of, uh, uh, of the, the, the territory. They stay and breed um, in the, rather like a, a queen bee stays and breeds rather than going out foraging. And the helpers uh, then go and uh, do what's necessary, they protect the young, they bring food to them in some species. Mole rats, they, they maintain the tunnel systems that they maintain under the ground, which gives them access to the tubers they're feeding on. Uh, so you get a division of labor um, in, terms of, uh, in terms of reproduction in that case. Uh, but it's usually the case in the mammalian systems that all the helpers do roughly the same thing. 
So you don't, whereas in the social insects, you get a division of labor among helpers. So you've got soldiers and foragers uh, uh, and so on. Uh, you don't find caste systems of that kind in any of the social mammals. So uh, when it comes to primates, is there something distinctive about primate society, societies in comparison with other mammals? I'm I, not many. I can't immediately think of anything um, that occurs in, in terms of social uh, in terms of social behavior that distinguishes primates from everything else. I can think of some things so that many primates live in stable groups compared to say the ungulates or the cetaceans where uh, groups are much groups are what we call open so individuals groups of individuals aggregate and they split up and they're not uh, they're not permanent social units if you go and watch red deer um, they tend to the females tend to associate relatives more, more frequently than with non-relatives. But if you look at a group, a herd of deer, maybe 20 or 30 deer, you see families, you see individuals from different families in there. And those subunits, those associated individuals will break off and they'll go somewhere else and, and so on. So the groups are unstable and they're what we call, as I say, open groups open in the sense that you can come in or you can leave. Um, much more commonly among the primates, you get closed groups where, where group membership is stable over quite periods of time. One sex may commonly um, immigrate in and, and individuals may disperse and leave, but um, the core of the group um, remains the same for weeks or months uh, at a time, quite different from the normal pattern of ungulates. So primates tend to live in stable groups. Um, they, uh, in contrast to the cooperative breeders, um, in virtually all the primates, apart from the marmosets and tamarins, um, it's the case that all females are fertile, all, all, all adult females are fertile and breed uh, relatively frequently, breed relatively regularly. So you don't get the same concentration of breeding in a single female as you do in the mole rats or, or, or the mongooses or the calatrichine primates, where one female does virtually all the breeding and other individuals may breed occasionally, but don't do so, do so frequently. Um, almost all, almost all the, all, well, all the monkeys, the thinking about it, are usually, usually produce single young. So there are a small number of primates um, which produce more than one young, commonly twins, um, but the great majority of females produce a uh, single young. And what that means, if you've got multiple females breeding and they're all producing single young, and particularly if you've got multiple males breeding, um, you have a situation where the level of kinship between individuals is not very high. It's difficult to get high levels of average kinship within groups, unless you have a single female that does most of the breeding, a single male that does most of the breeding with her, and the, sing and the female producing litters. 
That's what gives you high levels, high coefficients of relatedness between group members. So the production of single young and the uh, and polygynous matings reduce levels of kinship between group members. So in chimpanzees, for example, the level of, uh, I should have said, um, immigrate, female immigration affects this too. So female immigration um, will reduce levels of kinship. Where in, in species that produce single young, um, which are polygynous, there are multiple breeding females, and there's female immigration like chimpanzees, the average coefficients of relatedness are very, very low. Technical terms are about the coefficient of relatedness about 0.05. In contrast to meerkats, where you have one female doing most of the breeding, breeding usually with a single male and, and so on, the average coefficients of relatedness are of the order of 0.35 to, to 0.45. So a very high proportion of the individuals are, though they're a full sibs, a very high proportion of them are closely related to each other. These are the systems where you get cooperative care. These are the systems where you've got very high levels of average relatedness in the group, where, indivi where some individuals, some females, cease breeding and spend their time looking after young produced by the dominant female. Mm -hmm. How do we compare different mammal societies? So let's say that, for example, we study a particular mammal and can we draw directly inferences uh, regarding uh, the, uh, to, to other mammals that we study? Well, I think so. I think we, we, we can, in general, produce um, patterns of, uh, uh, of association. So that, um, for example, if you look at ungulates, if you look at deer and antelope and things like that, the, uh, the forest-dwelling antelopes, whether they're small, um, like Munchak, or whether they're big like a carpi, they're almost all solitary. And when you look at the open country ones living in grasslands and savanna, um, the great majority of ungulates, they live in groups and they tend to be polygynous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you get simple associations like that. A high proportion of nocturnal species feed alone. There are relatively few nocturnal species that forage in groups. They may sleep together, but they typically forage independently. Whereas in the open country, mammals generally, they commonly they feed in groups, probably as a adaptation to avoid predation. Uh, with, um, you, you find other similar associations. So for example, uh, with the species that commonly kill, with the carnivores, where individuals commonly pre kill prey, rely on killing prey larger than themselves. They commonly spend at least part of their time breeding in living, living in groups. So you've got hyenas and, uh, and lions, particularly wild dogs that live in groups and commonly rely on prey larger than themselves. Whereas in the smaller carnivores, the smaller felids and, and, and so on, smaller cats, um, which typically kill prey considerably smaller than themselves, they're almost all solitary. So, or, or live in pairs. So I th you can see associations um, between habitat uh, and between diet and between activity patterning and particular forms of, uh, of, of social organization across mammals. It's also the case um, that typically mammals, animals that have, uh, that are closely related to each other 
have similar breeding systems, similar patterns of sociality and similar patterns of, of care. So if you look at, there are lots of species of muntjac deer, they will commonly have, they all appear to have relatively similar um, forms of social organization. Um, if you look at uh, the Circopithocine, mon the African monkeys, uh, they commonly share common properties too, which are different from those um, shown by the social lemurs or by the new world monkeys. So both the ecological characteristics that animals share and the phylogenetic history that they share tend uh, can, can generate similarities in social systems. And one of the things that people like me are interested in um, is what are the what are the ecological causes and correlates of contrasts between mammal societies? Mm -hmm. Does that answer your question? Does that roughly answer your question? Yeah, roughly. Okay, so um, what are the effects that uh, things like variation in population density have on natural and sexual selection? Well, um, they, they can be uh, they can be direct. So it's quite commonly the case that uh, that that high that increasing population density within species generates increased competition for resources. So uh, as population density goes up, uh, many mammal populations are uh, the num their numbers are commonly regulated ultimately by food availability. So as density increases, more and more individuals starve or get diseases or so on, and then they die, and then that regulates the, the density. Now, very often in those circumstances, um, and particularly in polygynous species, where males are fighting it out and are going through an intense period of competition for females, some cases like red deer and elephant seals once a year. So males pack in and they don't, they feed very little when they're competing for females during the breeding season um, and they may damage each other. And under those circumstances, it's commonly the case um, that high density and in, 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 the, the food shortage uh, in winter generates higher levels of male mortality. So that in quite a number of these polygynous dimorphic species, high population density leads to higher mortality in males relative to females which in turn generates male, generates female bias sex ratios in the adult population. That, the, dif the difference in survival between males and females isn't just confined to adult males because in most of those species, males grow faster than females. So they require more food during, the, during periods of juvenile uh, living and adolescence. Uh, and again, uh, acute food shortage tends to lead to higher mortality in males than females. So that too contributes to a female biased adult sex ratio. As the bias towards females occurs in the adult sex ratio, so the extent of competition between males for breeding opportunities declines, which means that younger males get to breed and the variation between males is reduced. So it's commonly the case, I think, that high density reduces male competition and reduces the intensity, the strength of sexual selection. 
Uhum. And so, how do different animal societies regulate their the size of their population? They don't. Okay. <laughs> the size of their population is regulated for them. I mean, it, there was a thought in the 1960s, there's a famous book that suggested that animals regulate their density to avoid overutilizing their food supplies. And the problem with that, if you think about it, that, re that relies, uh, that argument relies on individuals operating for the benefit of the group or population versus their own benefit. In a situation where food is limited, what individual selection is doing is usually to encourage individuals to get more food. An individual that restricted its breeding output to, for the good of the population or, or, or group, uh, a, a, the, the genes behind that would rapidly go extinct. So increased resource, re reduced resources, increased competition for resources commonly generate increased competition between individuals. They don't get them hanging back on breeding. Everyone breeds if they can. So animals very seldom regulate their own population density like that. It's their population density is regulated for them by disease or by food availability leading to starvation or by increased predation rates. Mm -hmm. I understand. So now talking about humans, in what ways do human societies differ from other mammal societies and perhaps more specifically other primate societies? Well, I, th I think the big, I mean, it depends how, how deep one wants to go into this. I think one of the striking differences um, between human societies um, is concerned with cooperation but with, between strangers. Mm -hmm. So uh, most um, mammals that live in coherent groups uh, defend their group or, 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 or the area against unrelated females, um, unrelated individuals. Intruders are not welcome. Strangers are a danger. Yeah. Uh, strangers are commonly attacked, not universally. Some species are quite Pacific and as I've told you, some groups will aggregate with each other. But there's typically uh, considerable wariness of, of strangers. They're, they're, they are quite often attacked in meerkats, for example. If you stray, stray out of your range and you're caught, the neighbors will kill you. Uh, chimpanzees uh, will also kill neighbors, kill certainly males from neighboring communities. So there are lots of cases where there's pretty intense aggression between individuals from different groups. And I think at a sort of phenomenological level, we've got humans, not in all cases, uh, as I'm sure you realize, but um, we have rules about how one deals with strangers. Um, you wouldn't, you don't get the sort of rules of hospitality that are common to many, so many human societies occurring in animal societies. So, uh, I mean, that, taking back that back to another, another level that um, relates to uh, human societies accepting social norms and to the presence of, of social contracts. So individuals, even if the social contracts are, are not actually written down, 
most societies have some sort of acknowledged grouping of ethics which says we behave to strangers in this way. We, in many cases, we welcome them. We behave to other to each other in, in, in that way. So that uh, social contracts, some form of social contract is uh, common to human societies. And that's ultimately based on some form of agreement between members. So you and I agree that um, we'll Skype at a particular time or, or not, or something like, we'll agree on a way that we, we treat strangers. And quite commonly, we in, in societies, um, those norms uh, actually sort of generate into rules, and we uh, try and make sure that all members of the society behave in roughly the same way and penalize individuals that do something quite different. Now, there are very few animal societies where anything like that occurs. So uh, you, the, you, you don't get the, the norms. I mean, in, I can't think of, uh, there, there are risks in trying to kill other members of your group in animal societies, but I can't think of any animal society that punishes members of groups uh, where, where members of groups get together and punish an individual who murders another individual. Um, there are, in many cases, dangers uh, in, in, attacking, uh, in, in attacking other individuals within the group um, to individuals because you may get killed yourself or the individuals you're attacking may have a coalition with a third party and you may suddenly face two individuals trying to kill you. So I'm not saying there are no dangers, but you tend, uh, you very, I can't think of anything which is similar to the kind of uh, social th group punishment of individuals that diverge uh, and kill another individual. I think that that ultimately depends on some form. I mean, I'm using that as an extreme case, uh, and that the that uh, the the tendency for humans to punish individuals that do kill other individuals within the same group, at least in some circumstances, I think is related to the presence of social contracts. In, in the broadest sense of, of social contracts. And I suspect that social contracts are, that it's difficult to have social contracts without having some degree of language. Mm -hmm. You and I can agree on a social contract. Animals can't agree in the same way on a social contract. They can operate in the same way. So uh, some individuals expect other individuals to behave in the same way, but there's no very specific agreement that if you do that, I will do that. There's an expectation, a probabilistic expectation, but not much more than that. So I tend to think that one of the important differences between human uh, societies and animal societies is that animal societies don't have anything which is equivalent to the social contracts of humans. Mm -hmm. uh do human societies have one of those sorts of organizations? I mean, before I call them arrangements, but let's leave that term aside, uh, like one male, multi-female groups, uh, are they multi-male, multi-female or? Sorry, I'm not, can you 
just repeat, I, I didn't really follow that question. Mm -hmm. I, I was asking if uh, human societies have any specific sort of organization, like, for example, oh, multi-male, okay. multi-female. Okay. Well, um, in, in general, the communist forms of, of, of the communist social forms of, of who associates with human pairs. So some form of pair living is, is the commonest single form in humans with very commonly societies consisting of multiple pairs. Having said that, monogamy, as we all know, is not strict. And in most societies, a proportion of breeding goes on outside the technical, the, the accepted breeding pair. And in some societies, males have multiple breeding partners in an accepted fashion and you move to polygyny. And in others, you have several breeding males um, associating with a single breeding female, particularly in some of the montane villages um, around the Himalayas, where resources are very short, uh, and you have polyandry. So you've got a very wide range of, of human mating systems in there. Um, they are averages. You probably, in any society, you may well get examples of polyandry and polygyny and monogamy in the same in in the, <coughs> in the same population, but the in general, I think the the social anthropologists would say um, that pair living and monogamy was the commonest form of breeding system in humans. The the substantial number of societies are polygynous, um, but in all cases, in virtually all cases, there are exceptions within particular societies. So you don't want to think of um, particular breeding systems as being encoded in the DNA or anything like that. We're dealing with much more flexible circumstances than that. Mm -hmm. So uh, are humans a philopatric species? Yeah. Um, there's, a, there's considerable discussion uh, uh, about that, whether they're uh, I'm not a social anthropologist, so I'm not sure I'm the right person to, to ask about that. Um, I, th I think that the general, as far as I can see, the general argument um, is that uh, one may get, in many cases, they may get both. There are quite a lot of societies where they, where, where basically women um, transfer. So there's, compared to non-human mammals, there are a surprising number of societies where females um, actually move to other breeding groups. Yeah. Um, but both occur and uh, one, one gets societies where both occur in the, in, in the same society with both males and females leaving um, their, their normal breeding groups. So I think it's very flexible. Mm -hmm. Does any other animal, not animal, sorry, mammal society have culture? Oh yes. Um, masses of animal societies have culture. Uh, if by, by culture one means that uh, members of a group share um, some common behavior which has been learned from other members of the group uh, and there's divergence between groups so that there's wonderful work on orangs so that in different populations they learn to open particular fruit uh, in different ways 
has worked with Japanese macaques, which shows that um, some groups learn the technique of uh, washing sweet potatoes and others don't. And the groups that do it, that spreads throughout the whole group. We've looked at that for meerkats. And the only thing we can find with meerkats is some groups get up early in the morning and others get up later in the morning. So presumably everyone's learned in some groups that you, know, um, you get up and, that, and that's good for you and you get the first resources and in others believe it's better to stay in bed. Um, so, the, so I think culture is very common. Uh, I don't think culture necessarily requires any very high level of cognitive abilities. It, uh, it, it requires the ability to learn from the individuals around you. And if you can learn or, or coincide your behavior with the other individuals around you, um, then you get a divergence of behavior between groups, um, which is what we call culture. Yeah. Um, culture can have major consequences then. So you can get those cultural differences um, growing and uh, those cultural differences, um, as people have argued, probably play a huge role in generating uh, the kinds of social contracts that I was talking about earlier. And social contracts may have a major effect on the on differences in society. So uh, as you move to humans, you move, I think, to a very different evolutionary regime. And you move to ones which, where, um, where differences in learning and differences in social agreements and differences in social contracts have a major, it can have a major effect on both on the survival of groups and the survival of individuals. And you move to a situation where group selection, called cultural group selection, may well be very important. So I think as you move to humans, you move to circumstances where the relative importance of different evolutionary mechanisms may vary considerably from other animals. So I tend to, in general, uh, emphasize the differences between humans and other animals rather than the similarities. There are quite mm -hmm. a lot of, the world tends to be divided into people who point out the similarities between humans and other animals. I tend to point out the, um, the, the, the differences. There are both differences and similarities. Uh, and uh, in a sense, it's, it depends on what point you're wanting to make. It depends what you're why arguing as to whether you emphasize the similarities between humans and other social animals or the differences. Mm -hmm. So one final question, but talking still of, uh, about culture, um, how do you look at the relationship between culture and biology or is culture a biological phenomenon? Well, culture is a biological phenomenon. I mean, in animal terms, uh, I don't think there's a uh, there's no problem. Culture is is in a, in a sense a consequence of social learning, and social learning ultimately depends on uh, on what goes in, on inside your head. So it's um, it, it certainly has a a, a partially biological basis. Um, is it the case that differences in culture are generated by natural selection? Not necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So differences in culture don't necessarily increase the lifetime breeding success of individuals uh, or necessarily of any 
uh, of all individuals in the group, uh, it may quite commonly increase uh, the breeding success of the, of the small number of individuals that, that monopolize most of the resources. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily increase the common good and, uh, and the average breeding success. I think the, and the thing that I find um, in a sense more revealing is that culture commonly has, an, has a substantial effect on biological processes. So you, the way in the, the, the influence, the, the circumstances under which biological uh, processes operate are liable to be strongly affected by culture. To take very simple um, uh, explanations, the simple examples, um, the culture depends on what you affects what you find stressful. The culture you've been brought up in is likely to affect uh, what you find stressful uh, is consequently likely to uh, affect the influence of particular social events in your society on your cortisol levels or your sex hormone levels and so on. So that culture modifies the effect of the environment on biological processes like hormone production and hormone, hormonal levels in turn can affect behavior. So I think one of the, one of the seriously interesting areas here, um, which I suspect will become extremely important in the long run, is to, is to explore how um, social circumstances in humans and cultural circumstances affect biological mechanisms with downstream consequences, both of a short term for behavior and indeed a long term for development and, so, uh, and health and survival. So I think that the cultural processes have major consequences. And one of the unfortunate reasons I think why those have not been more explored, and I think those effects are widespread and are very important, but they're running from culture to biology, not from biology to culture. One of the reasons they haven't is the awful divide between social scientists and natural scientists, um, which has uh, developed over the last 100 or so years. Uh, and I think that the, I, I terribly much hope that the next 50 years we'll, we'll see social science and biology coming together and exploring the areas uh, where they both coincide and the processes which require you to understand both social processes in a sociologist sense and biological processes, because there are a lot of ways in which they affect each other. Mm -hmm. And would that include uh, things like gene culture coevolution? Yes, that would. Those, those, those might involve that. You're then talking much more about the cases uh, in which genetics actually affects natural selection. I was giving you cases where effectively culture uh, affects the influence of the environment on your hormones, on short-term things, things that are not determined, that everything will have a genetic basis or some genetic basis in the long run. Um, but the kinds of examples that I was giving you are cases where culture modifies the, the, how you react to particular social or environmental events. And that has biological consequences which affect your, which can affect your behavior or your responses or, uh, and so on. And uh, I think that, I mean, for example, 
the kinds of your culture may well affect how pregnant women are affected by food shortage or by social instability of one kind or, or another. Um, they may consequently affect maternal hormones. Maternal hormones affect the development of fetuses and can generate consequences that last throughout the individual's life. So I think we're going to find a lot of processes there where cultural differences have a major effect on development and on the um, subsequent behavior of individuals, which is in no way genetic. It's not, it, what's not, it, it's not a situation where you have uh, anything like genetic determinism. It's actually a direct effect of culture on, on your physiology, on, on your hormone levels and so on, which has developmental effects, which are then difficult to escape. Uh, and I think there are lots of cases where people are going to, where, where effects of that kind are going to be found. We know of some, but I suspect they're very widespread. And that's why I think it's, it's so important that social sciences and biological sciences should come together to get to uh, understand that. And the, the argument that anyone who is interested in the interface between biology and, uh, and human social behavior is uh, necessarily a genetic determinist, I, I, think is a, I think is quite wrong. I think that there have been people who thought in that way in the past, but there are interactions between biology and social sciences and social sciences and biology, which don't, uh, which don't lead to genetic processes necessarily. There are some that may lead to genetic processes too, but there are many ways in which the society affects um, the development of, of individuals. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Dr. Clutenbrock, let's end the interview here. Uh, just before we go, uh, I will be leaving links in the description box to your work and also your book, Mammal Societies. Are there any places on the internet you would like to mention where people can find your work? Uh, they can go to Google Scholar. The, the straightforward one of anyone doing that is to go to Google Scholar and they'll get all uh, get a listing of my work there uh, and they'll be able to see the abstracts to the work. Otherwise, probably Mammal Societies is the best reference. Yeah. Okay, so Dr. Clutenbrook, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, thank you very much. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. Uh, please consider supporting the show. This depends all. This show depends entirely on your support. So uh, head to Patreon.com/slash/TheDissenter and consider making a pledge there. Otherwise, I also have links to PayPal in the description box of this interview. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at Enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons and main supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Peruga Larson, Lauguerero, Francis Fordans, Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Alan Kessel, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Vosbo, Weingart, Rebecca Niburger Goldstein, then Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, 
Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Pinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Librand, Oslan Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Miran B., Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Max Bailby, Nelek Bach, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Ian Gilligan, Sergio Adriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, John Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardus France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.